0: Hi everyone and welcome to Murder and
1: Merlot. We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host Tara and I'm your host Michelle. How's it going Michelle? It's going really good today. Yeah. Yeah. I got to see my grandma on her 83rd birthday today. That is so it sweet. Made my heart so happy because I haven't been able to see her without like a fence and a rope and a you know like armed guard basically in our way <laughs> since covid started so it was a it was a beautiful treat to be able to see her and i'm so happy Uh, i'm so glad that that worked out well and it was all a really good day all the feels
0: though holy. (laughs) all the feels don't start crying now we
1: have a lot i will i told you i would get my shit in check (laughs) (laughs) deep breaths deep breaths
0: that's fantastic
1: yes how are things on
0: your end Oh, oh, good. I just spent the last two days just writing furiously, like literally from the moment I woke up <laughs> to late, late at night. I have just been writing this because I haven't had time to write it in the previous week, couple weeks. It just hasn't worked out. So I just had to do it all oh. at once. So um, my brain is mush. I good. hope my words work. I hope my words make sense, but uh, I guess we will see.
1: Oh, yeah. And if we have some giggles along the way, then we have some giggles along the way, right? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Did you see my Facebook post yesterday about green onions? Oh, my God. I died laughing. <laughs> so I'm I died. I'm convinced that I have a brain tumor. I just, it, these things keep happening to me. So I told Michelle last week that I think I have a brain tumor because I'm getting these weird flashbacks. <laughs> All of the time. Yeah. And there is just random moments in my life just popping into my head. And I just like keep telling myself, oh, my life is slowly flashing before my eyes. (laughs) I must have a brain tumor. I'm obviously dying. And then the weird thing was that it was things that were happening exactly one year ago were the images that were flashing in my head. So I'm like, well, that's really weird. But then (laughs) on Friday, I was just, you know, doing errands. And I meant to search uh, uh, the hours to this one company's (laughs) Please, And instead I just typed into Google green onions and I just <laughs> didn't even clue in. I pressed search and then I just died laughing because I was like, what just happened in my brain? What just happened? So I'm just, I'm convinced it must be a brain tumor. <laughs> You maybe should see a doctor about that. <laughs> yeah. Something is not connecting well. So if I bring up any random
1: vegetables during
0: this episode, that's what happened.
1: <laughs> I also loved your tweet the other day when you were like, having multiple um, Instagram accounts yeah. is really hard because, you know, you make a comment on your friend's post and you're like, hey, you're so beautiful. But then you realize it's your murdery. Instagram, and then it makes you seem creepy. I do, it all the time, I literally, like the day before, had accidentally followed Zac Efron as Murder and Merlot, and I was like, I don't think that's right. But he he could appreciate it. He was Ted Bundy, like I know. But I was like, that sounds. I don't want to murder Zac Efron, so I don't want him to get the wrong idea. I just want to creep him a little bit. I know.
0: So funny. I do it to my friends all the time. I'm like, oh, you're beautiful. You're so gorgeous. And like before some of my friends even knew that I had this murder thing going on, they were like, who the fuck? (laughs) And then I had to like type, oh, sorry, it's Tara. This is my murdery account. And they're like, okay, that still doesn't help at all.
1: Doesn't help. Doesn't clarify anything. You're a (laughs) creeper, Tara. Yeah. Yeah. The struggles. I had a good giggle though. (laughs) I love it.
0: Yes. And we are super excited about the giveaway that we're doing. Hopefully everybody has seen that on our social medias and will do all the things and get entered into our draw and hopefully win some cool stuff. Yeah.
1: And don't forget about the extra bonus points. If you give us a review, because mm-hmm. screenshot it to us, because... We like reviews and we really don't have that many, so. Exactly. And it would help us a lot. So uh,
0: not only would you get an extra entry into the draw, but we'll also send you some cool stuff in the mail, send you a little sticker, a bookmark, and a little note. So it's a win-win. Yeah, it's all good. Just do it. Yeah. Excellent. And from our Waco episode, we got a little bit of feedback, Um, mostly a lot of strong feelings about child abuse and the young wives. Like Mm the same feelings that I had as well, but it was um, pretty fun to get those messages of somebody was just, you know, right in the middle of the episode and was just fuming, just like I was. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know the feels.
1: Oh, sorry, there's a tiny human. That's okay. (laughs) I heard it coming. This pillowcase fell off. Oh, no. Sorry. No worries. So that was
0: the feedback from the Waco episode. And then our Favorite response from our Fluff and Stuff question came from Angela on Facebook, and she replied, sure am, happy for every day, and we just love that. We do, because that was our question was,
1: are you happy? Yes. All right, are you ready? I guess I'm ready. All right, friends, grab your glass and get cozy. Let's book club it up. Tink,
0: tink. Wouldn't it be nice when we actually can
1: tink our glasses in person? Oh my gosh, I can't wait. I don't know when that's going to be. Doesn't sound like ever. Ever, because fuck COVID.
0: Fuck COVID. <sighs> this is a, it feels like 1,000 episodes recorded over the computer like this.
1: <laughs> I don't know if it's ever going to go back to normal. I know. And We've done way more episodes like this than we have oh, together. Way more. way more. I think we did four episodes in person. Yeah. And this is what, like episode 18? So. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, Episode 19. 19, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, crazy. All right, well, welcome to part two of the Waco Tragedy. Before we jump into it, I'll just mention that I was hoping to do this series in only two parts, but there is just so much information that I wanted to include that I am now making this our first ever three-part episode. Woo,
1: woo, woo. (laughs) Hold on to your butts, guys. (laughs) I
0: assume if you're listening to this, you have already finished part one. If you haven't, well, then you're a sick freak and you need to get your priorities straight. But anyways, (laughs) I just wanted to give a quick recap just to refresh everyone's memory about what we have already discussed. David Koresh is the leader of the Branch Davidians, a group of over 100 followers that lived in a commune called Mount Carmel outside of Waco, Texas. In order to fund the community, some of the members, including David, bought and sold firearms, ammunition, as well as hunting gear and accessories. They traveled all around the state to visit gun shows, and they did this with the help of a licensed gun dealer, Henry McMahon. Their large purchases of guns and ammunition caught the attention of the ATF, as well as the child abuse allegations that came from past members. As of 1993, David had 15 wives, 17 children, and two more along the way. Ugh. Ugh yeah. <laughs> Hate that. Some of his so-called wives that were apparently chosen by God were as young as 11 years old. Others were the wives of devout followers or were the mothers of his young wives. (laughs) So many feelings. All around bad vibes. There were clearly multiple cases of statutory rape and aggravated sexual assault, as some of these children had given birth to his children. Yes, I meant to say that these children gave birth to his children.
1: Barf. <laughs> oh, I hate it. Oh. It mm. just like puts a fire in my belly like nothing else. Oh yeah. Rage, rage man. Yeah.
0: Rage. <laughs> <That's> fucking rage.
1: <laughs> I feel like like as I read this
0: episode back, like I was raging the whole time. So that is the theme of today is just rage. <laughs> rage. Bring it. Bring it. <laughs> And this was all because David apparently received messages from God instructing him on who to take his wives in order to produce elite children that would later become a group of elders. We mentioned in the last episode that we would look into the marriage laws and the age of consent in Texas today to see if they had changed since the 1990s. While these events were taking place, the legal age of marriage was only 14 with parental permission and the age of consent was 17. Michelle? What did you find on
1: this topic? So interesting, the age of consent in Texas is now 18. Okay. Which I thought was great. Yeah. But, big old but in there. Um, <laughs> with parental consent, they can still have marriages at the age of 14. Damn. Right. That's too bad. And I was hoping that number was going to change. <laughs> I, I was too. And I was actually quite shocked because I, as I was looking into it, I found like all of the other states. So of course I went down that rabbit hole and surprisingly, there's a bunch of states that their age of consent is like 15. Hmm. Kansas, Hawaii, I'm looking at you. Yeah. I mean, those are like Hawaii needs both parental and court consent, but Mm. I feel like that'd be very
0: awkward to ask for that at that age.
1: (laughs) I know. And, um, a lot of the others are between 16 and 17. So mm-hmm. yeah, I confirmed that Canada is 16. Yeah. Like I had thought before. So yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yes. Well, thanks for looking into that, Michelle. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of funny because Tara texted me. to be like, hey, can you look that up? I'm like, oh yeah, I already did. And she's like, God damn, you're amazing. And I just like, <laughs> laughed out loud. So well, what's even funnier is that I thought
0: that I had written that down somewhere where you could read it. So I'm like, oh, she must've read my notes and she looked into it. But then I realized I had only written it down in my notebook and you just knew, you just knew that I needed that done. And how, how creepy is that?
1: Legit on the same page. I don't know. All Maybe I'm the time. That would be cool. We'll go with that. <laughs> I would love that. Me too. <laughs>
0: Would you share some of your witchy powers with me?
1: Sure, if I could. <laughs> if I knew how okay. to use them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Figure it out.
0: Get back to me. Let me know.
1: All right. Okay. start transferring your energy and stuff. <laughs> cool. <laughs> All
0: right. So obviously, we have very strong feelings about what happened to the wives and the children of the Branch Davidians. However, the rest of their lifestyle, eh, I'm pretty okay with. Although living conditions weren't immaculate, they could have been much worse and they were pretty much able to live off of the land and to me that's like goals. I think that's very cool. It's not something that people are able to do nowadays. It's actually a really cool
1: skill to have. And they weren't completely consumed by technology. Exactly. Right. They had some but Mm -hmm. and they really did seem to care for each other
0: and what they believed in like fully. Mm -hmm. So so that part like I said I'm pretty okay with. But regardless of what I think the ATF had some different thoughts about the ranch apocalypse, which, by the way, was supposedly a name the members used for their compound. However, the only time I've heard this name used was either by the FBI or in the media. In all other research, from survivors or about their origin, everybody called it Mount Carmel. Did you find the same? Did you see it anywhere? I did,
1: yeah. I, yeah. The only place I saw it was like FBI media. Yeah. In Gary Nosner's book, he, he referenced it. A few times and I was like yes okay
0: <laughs> yeah I mean it's a cool name I think it's badass I'm telling right? you when I buy some cows fuck yeah that's gonna be my my ranch <laughs> name <laughs> oh yeah I'm gonna start living off the land get With apocalyptic
1: cows, cows. <laughs> apocalyptic cows specifically apocalyptic cows <laughs> I don't know what that means but I like it I don't know <laughs> they are <they're> badass regardless <laughs> Oh, man, I wish I was artistic because I would draw the picture that I have in my head right now, but oh, I'm not. Oh, damn, somebody do that up, please. We would yeah. pay you.
0: Pay you. <laughs> uh, right now I have the picture in my head. I know. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, we know that the ATF we're looking for some good press after the incident at Ruby Ridge where they had a 10-day standoff with a family in Idaho, which resulted in the deaths of an agent, Vicki Weaver, and 12-year-old Sammy Weaver. So that is what we discussed previously, and it all led to the surveillance and the investigation of David Koresh and the Branch Davidian cult. To the ATF, this was a perfect opportunity to show the world what they could do. They even planned on filming their raid on Mount Carmel. But before we get to that, they still need to find out more information about the cult, and what was happening on those Texas prairies. From the Branch Davidians' perspective, there was a building feeling of a powerful, unforeseen force that was threatening the community in the second half of 1992. This was the fate that they were expecting foretold in the Book of Revelation. David even asked some of his followers during that summer, what are you going to do in six months from now when this is all surrounded by tanks? They couldn't imagine such a force being used against them. They thought their leader was just being paranoid because that wouldn't happen here. This is America, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. However, after they observed the Ruby Ridge incident in August 1992, their trust in America was starting to shift. They didn't admire Randy Weaver as he was involved with the Christian Identity Movement, a separatist group with Aryan Nations connections, but they did, however, fear that the violence used against him and his family could happen to them as well. Their beliefs and their way of life would be misunderstood by outsiders in mainstream society, making them a target. And unfortunately, some of the agents that were responsible for the Ruby Ridge incident would be the same ones involved in the siege at Mount Carmel. <clears throat> now I'm getting raspy. <laughs> so I've talked too much today already. <laughs> ATF agents started questioning those that had some affiliations with the Branch Davidians, including Henry McMahon, who, as we know, was a licensed armed dealer. Of course, Henry informed David of this interaction, and that gave him direct confirmation that they were being investigated. If the ATF were trying to hide the fact that they were watching the group, they did a terrible job. Military helicopters began low-level flights over the compound, and the aerial surveillance went on
1: throughout the summer, fall, and winter. So yeah, they were completely surprised by the fact that they were being (laughs) investigated. Right? (laughs) Had no idea. That's not obvious at all.
0: David tried to make peace by inviting local deputies over, and he kept in contact with child services. However, on a spiritual level, he was expecting disaster. He predicted that the obliteration of the community would happen in Waco, and that the truth would be suppressed. It's a little eerie that a lot of David's predictions about their fiery end would eventually come true. Mm -hmm. David couldn't simply challenge the authorities to either charge them or leave them alone. Even though the child abuse and gun stockpiling likely wouldn't amount to any convictions, he knew he was vulnerable on the statutory rape allegations. It tainted his claim of complete innocence. At the end of 1992, the ATF contacted Mark Bro in Australia to gain some insider information. They told him that they had suspicions of David stockpiling weapons, some of which were illegal. Knowing David well, as Mark was once his right-hand man, he strongly advised them to arrest David with no force and outside of the compound. He even went jogging down the dirt road every day, and since he was the only one named on the affidavit, he could have easily been picked up. The ATF also approached the special forces, asking them to help with training agents. Under federal law, U.S. Armed Services can only aid law enforcement officers if narcotics are involved. So the ATF lied, saying that they were operating a drug lab in Mount Carmel. There was a meth lab in the building at one point, however, that was back when George Rodin was in charge. Once David took over, he called the local authorities to come have it removed. On January 6, 1993, planes with infrared cameras went over the facilities to scan for heat sources, looking for the supposed meth lab in order to validate the trumped-up charges. A mockup of Mount Carmel was created in order to plan the siege. However, the ATF's plan to use military force in training and for attack violated federal law and could lead the army assuming criminal and civil liability. So they're just doing a great job.
1: They were just being legit. Hey, I just don't even know where, like, who, do you where think their heads you are, <laughs> where their heads were at when they were like, "Oh yeah, yeah," there's definitely like a mess lab in there. When they were pretty sure there wasn't, since. Like Koresh himself had it, it removed by authorities. Yes, exactly. He's not going to start making mess again.
0: <laughs> just doesn't. After happen. he's gotten rid of it, they were just trying to manipulate the situation so that it went exactly how they wanted, regardless of what was actually happening there.
1: And if you can't see that going in, like that, that's a problem. Like yeah. How does it not wind up in disaster? Exactly. What are you expecting? Right? Yeah.
0: So the next thing that the community noticed was that they acquired some new neighbors that seemed more than a little suspicious. Two small houses across from Mount Carmel were owned by a rancher. The one was occupied and the other had been empty for years. On January 10th, four men in their 30s to 40s moved into the decrepit house. They hardly brought any furniture or possessions with them except for a large array of what looked like camera equipment. Cue the don't be suspicious song.
1: No kidding! Don't be suspicious. Nothing to see here. (laughs) Right? Like, come
0: on. These so-called ranchers wore name brand clothing and accessories, Rolexes, and drove new Chevy Blazers.
1: Totally a rancher thing to do. Oh yeah, we know a lot (laughs) of ranchers, and that's that's what they do. No, it is not actually.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm just picturing my husband dressed like that,
1: and it just. Nope, that doesn't Or mine, work. no. mm that's not a thing. I don't even think my husband owns a watch, nevertheless, a Rolex. So. No.
0: They claimed to be from the Dallas area with ranching backgrounds, looking for property to buy. When they were asked questions about ranching, the men became confused and didn't know how to answer. At another time, they told the Davidians that they were all students at the Texas State Technical College studying philosophy. Like, seriously, could you act more suspicious? Come on,
1: <laughs> like really philosophy, philosophy,
0: grown ass men in thirties and forties that are currently successful ranchers are now in school, all taking philosophy, all in the same class. philosophy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just learning, learning the ways of like Plato and you know, <laughs> yeah. all them other philosophy type guys. Cool. Yeah. You can really
0: apply that to your cattle work. Yeah. It's well, pretty much know. a need for ranchers
1: it's, you know, reasoning with your cattle. It's going to come in handy. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Always works for me. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> I guess now I have to go in for philosophy before I start my ranch apocalypse. So uh, apparently. apparently I'm damn it guys. I might have to take a break from podcasting. This sounds very time consuming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You might actually be able to sleep if you're in a philosophy class So You think so? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. That might actually work. (laughs) Regardless of how strange these men were, David and the Branch Davidians were always hospitable. One of the agents, Roger Gonzalez, started hanging around the compound more and more. He pretended to have an interest in David and his teachings. However, he, of course, was there to get information about the property, the people, and any illegal activity. David was treating him like a potential follower. He was aware that the man was likely involved with the government. However, He saw something in Gonzalez. He thought he was a good person and with enough time, he could convert him. Other members were not as welcoming, though. They were suspicious of Roger's motives since he was hanging around them so often. Wayne Martin was one of those people. He checked out the registration on their vehicles and found that they were all named under the same address in Houston, the location of the nearest ATF office. Again, great job. Like
1: rent a car at least. It's not that hard.
0: (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Roger's name was actually Robert Rodriguez. He shared meals, listened to Bible studies, and would sometimes stay until midnight. A few times, his colleagues had to come and take him back to their ranch house as they feared he was getting too involved with the community and for the wrong reasons. Rodriguez did admit later on that if he had stayed over at the compound, he probably would have been hooked. But at the same time, Robert knew that he had an assignment, and that was to find out how much firepower the group had and what knowledge and skills they had with guns. Robert once brought over an AR-15, recently machined to be fully automatic, to show David. He was trying to get David to admit to owning fully automatic weapons himself, but instead, David told him that it was a dangerous weapon and he should get that taken care of because it was illegal. In the end, the agent reported no evidence of illegal guns or explosives at Mount Carmel. But that didn't slow down the ATF at all. They had their mind made up whether there was probable cause or not.
1: Like, can we repeat that? The undercover agent <laughs> reported no evidence of illegal guns or explosives. Yes. The whole reason why he was there, to find that out, that's what he
0: reported back. But let's, yeah. let's ignore him. Let's just do what we want to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Must be fun to be the ATF.
0: <laughs> Must be easy because like, you just do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. The ATF prepared an affidavit that was the basis for a warrant to search Mount Carmel and arrest David. They were deliberately deceptive with the wording and it raised issues that were not under ATF jurisdiction, such as child abuse and drug trafficking the IRS got involved when they were told it was suspected that drug money laundering was taking place within the compound. This is how they were able to obtain military material that would normally be forbidden. ATF agents would later admit the drug lab allegations were completely fabricated. No surprise there. Nope. There were many inaccuracies documented in the affidavit about firearms which is funny because they are supposed to be the very agency in charge of regulating them. They also showed no evidence of intent that the Branch Davidians were going to use the guns for criminal purposes. They were so out to lunch that they tried to use a shotgun news magazine that was seen in the compound as proof that they were a dangerous group. Like a magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Like pictures and articles kind of magazine. Not even like the ammunition kind of magazine, which is also not illegal, so it wouldn't have mattered. But still, that doesn't prove anything.
1: Yeah, like I'm pretty sure on half the coffee tables in our county, there's shotgun news.
0: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Some type of gun or hunting type reading material.
1: Exactly. Doesn't
0: prove shit. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, that was their their go-to, I guess. Yeah, when you're trying to paint a picture. Use whatever you can get. The FBI even stated that no information had been developed to verify allegations of child abuse, neglect, tax evasion, slavery, or mass destruction. But ATF agents ignored all other opinions but their own. They were in it for the glory. Regardless, the warrant that was issued on February 25th stated that law enforcement needed to knock and request entry. And only if peaceful access was denied, then they could use force. They must also wait a reasonable amount of time for the occupants to reply before proceeding. Very important. Remember that. This is a very important detail. <laughs> the attack on the commune was originally named Operation Trojan Horse, but later Showtime was the name that stuck, which I think says a lot about their motives.
1: It was, oh, all for show.
0: Mm-hmm. Two days before the raid on February 26th, a bombing at the New York City World Trade Center took place. This resulted in six people dead and over 1,000 injured. After that, the U.S. Treasury Acting Secretary for Enforcement tried to call off the raid. He was concerned that inadequate precautions were made to ensure the safety of ATF agents and the Davidians. The ATF wanted to proceed as long as their element of surprise was not compromised. If it was, they would call it off. I just rolled my
1: eyes really hard.
0: (laughs) I could hear you doing that. Like, I just felt that from over there. (laughs) I don't know how you can hear somebody roll their eyes, but I feel like I did. (laughs) Because you heard my eyeballs hit the back of my head. (laughs) I guess so. Went whap. (laughs) Yet before the raid took place, they were the ones that alerted the media and on February 27th, the newspaper article The Sinful Messiah from the Waco Tribune Herald was released, and it included all of the charges against David. They promised to publish a seven-part series on the topic. Upon seeing this, David knew that this was it. The waiting period was finally over. The morning of the raid, a large batch of guns were taken out of Mount Carmel as some of the members were going to a gun show in Austin. Not only did this mean a lot of their firepower was removed but it also meant that a number of their useful defenders were not present. They did still have some semi-automatic weapons and pistols in the compound, but even then, only a fraction of the members could and would use firearms. Out of approximately 130 members, 43 were children under 15 years, 45 were women, and of the men, there were many that were elderly, and others, like David Thibodeau, refused to use guns. At 8 a.m., Robert brought in Part 2 of The Sinful Messiah. This edition featured Mark Brough's story. All of the insider information included from him was already four years old by then, and a lot of it had changed. Steve was fielding calls from the Tribune-Herald as they wanted a reaction from the Davidians about their deprecating articles. The ATF later blamed the newspaper for ruining their element of surprise. But again, it's not like the ATF were doing a good job of concealing themselves. The Waco hotels were filled with agents and local hospitals were told to prepare for casualties, so everyone knew something big was going down. Tensions were building back at Mount Carmel, and Robert was acting very nervous. At 9am, Perry's son, David Jones, burst through the doors, needing to talk to Koresh. While he was out delivering mail, he was waved down by a TV cameraman asking for directions to Rodenville, a name that was once used by locals from Mount Carmel. Because of his U.S. Postal Service vehicle, the lost cameraman assumed that he wouldn't be a member of the community. But he was, of course. He grew up there, and he was David Kresh's brother-in-law. As he rushed back to the compound, he met a vehicle full of armed men in full combat gear and riot helmets. He could even see the ATF lettering on their backs. Helicopters could also be heard in the distance. Subtle. Very
1: subtle. subtle. Yes.
0: (laughs) So this was it. It was going down now. After the news got to Koresh, Robert hurried out and peeled away in his car, lights flashing, trying to signal the others. While he was retreating, he phoned the raid commander to warn him that the Branch Davidians knew that they were coming. Even though their element of surprise was blown, 80 vehicles were already on their way. Among the convoy were cattle trailers, which held approximately 80 ATF agents in full combat gear. Each agent was equipped with a camera, a weapon, nylon handcuffs, and flashbang grenades. Half a dozen snipers were already in position as well, and three National Guard helicopters were in the air. As the group could feel the pressure building around them, David told everyone he wanted to talk it out with the officers so no one was to act irrationally. As law enforcement reached Mount Carmel at 9.45 a.m., Koresh walked out of the front doors, unarmed, trying to speak to officers. They responded by shouting, police, search warrant, get down. The ATF later tried to claim that this was all of the notification required by their warrant. David claimed he couldn't hear what they were saying because of all the commotion, so he just kept pleading, there are women and children in here. But the agents kept coming, so he retreated. That is when the bullets started to fly. A burst of gunfire came through the doors and Perry Jones started screaming. He was shot in the stomach and the leg. The door slammed shut, and David staggered in backwards. In response to the firing at their building, some of the members began shooting back. It is, of course, heavily debated as to who fired first. Of course, the ATF claims that they were fired at, and others say it all started when agents shot the dogs outside, which was what the Netflix Waco series depicted. The original plan was to burst through the door with force and arrest David. 50 agents would intimidate and disarm the men, and take the women and children into custody. That is definitely not how the situation panned out. The first period of gunfire lasted 15 minutes. Then, after a 20-minute pause, it started back up again. That is when the first agent was killed. During all of this, Wayne Martin called 911, saying they were under attack and they needed to call a ceasefire. But the deputy couldn't reach the ATF as none of them were equipped with cell phones. Of course not. Because why would you be prepared at all? For any sort of communication. Right? Agents continued to attack and began climbing ladders in order to enter through the chapel roof. They broke the windows of the gun room and threw in flashbang grenades. Someone inside started firing and three agents were hit. Two died and one was wounded and fell off the roof. When agents did get inside, they found the gun room was pretty well empty as everything had been taken out for the gun show. I hope you felt stupid. (laughs) I hope they really did. Yeah. During these events, more agents and more Davidians were wounded. Clearly, there was no intention of a peaceful entry or arrest. Even the helicopters fired from above, focusing where they thought David would be, but without actually knowing. They were supposed to be used only for supervising the attack, not engaging in it. Two of the helicopters eventually had to land after being struck. And That one just really pisses me off. Like they think yeah. they think he would have been in one area of the building. So let's just
1: let's just Shoot start at shooting
0: it. there because you know there's probably there's not innocent there's, people in that building. You no, know, not innocent people or children or anything like that. There's, there's no tiny humans in there, right? Let's just go off <laughs> a a theory that you know. Mm-hmm. Would make no sense while they're being under attack. You have no idea where he's gonna be or what he's going to be doing. He's you know and last we saw
1: him, he was at the front door. <laughs> exactly.
0: Oh it makes me so mad. <sighs> By the time the ceasefire was seriously considered, the ATF had 16 wounded and four dead. They realized at this time that they had made no preparations for their own casualties and no retrieval strategies for the injured. Finally, at 11.30 a.m., after almost two and a half hours of firefight, the final ceasefire was agreed on. However, David had been shot just as it had been announced. He was hit in the right wrist, separating the nerve to his thumb, and he was also shot in his left side, hitting a piece of his hip bone. What would have happened if the agents simply knocked on the door and arrested David like they were supposed to? many think David would have cooperated, considering the system had worked for him in the past with the George Roden incident. Within the compound, Perry Jones eventually died. It is unknown if he succumbed to his injuries, if he killed himself, or if he had someone else put him out of his misery. Later, an autopsy revealed that he was killed with a bullet wound fired point-blank into his mouth, although some believed that those reports were faulty. Winston Blake had been shot under the right ear while eating French toast in his bedroom. Three others died that day as well. Peter Gent and Peter Hibsman were both unarmed, and J. Dean Wendell had just finished breastfeeding her 10-month-old baby. Of the wounded, there was David Koresh, Judy Snyder, Scott Zenobi, and David Jones. Koresh had the worst injuries and was moving in and out of consciousness. They all thought he was going to die. Even if the group were expecting the end times, Nothing could have prepared them for this day. One more Davidian would lose their life the following day. Mike Schroeder and two other members tried to make their way back to Mount Carmel as they were coming from the auto shop where they lived and worked. Again, both sides blamed the other for firing first, but regardless, after 30 minutes, Mike was shot and killed. The Texas Rangers were not allowed to investigate that scene for 10 days after the incident, only gaining access once it had rained, which likely washed away any evidence. Mike's body was left hanging on the fence for four days, and by that point, coyotes had chewed off one of his legs.
1: Want to talk about rage?
0: Yeah. Yep. I'm rage. raging. <laughs> mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> no, I need to breathe because I'm like, yeah, just, like,
1: it's just building in me like, oh my God. So disrespectful. Like, I don't care. Like, don't treat a body like that. Right? And so clearly they had something to hide if they weren't
0: allowing the investigation for 10 days. Like, what until
1: rain Ugh. came and washed away the evidence. That is, that just speaks for itself. I know. And then to leave him on a fence so he yeah. could get scavenged by freaking coyotes, like. Right? While his wife and children were
0: in the compound right there. Yeah. That's real nice.
1: Yeah. That's stellar.
0: I was trying to calm myself
1: down, but now I just got perfect. and nope, I went off. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> That's okay.
1: I was also trying to be calm, and then it was just word vomit, so Yeah, it just happened. Yes, I understand.
0: <laughs> After the failed raid attempt, the ATF went to the press to say that they were outgunned and shifted the blame onto the Branch Davidians, and I'm already so <laughs> <bad>. <laughs> oh my god sorry you had what three helicopters three helicopters, and 80 agents they all had weapons
1: they were all tactically trained and we as we discussed in the previous episode um according to texas rules they didn't have enough guns <laughs> yeah so
0: they didn't have enough guns per person on a good day but all a the good guns day. were taken out of the compound on that day i know But they were outgunned by the Branch Davidians. Right? (laughs) And I I mean, (laughs) I get into it a little bit more here, but I'm already so furious. (laughs) They also blamed local law enforcement and the media, even though they were the ones that invited the TV crews along. They conveniently left out the part where they ignored their intel, which told them that their attack was compromised and there was no longer an element of surprise. Approximately 80 heavily armed and trained agents with helicopters, like we said, <laughs> failed to subdue a vulnerable community filled with women and children. So yeah, their, their plan to gain good press was going
1: so well. <laughs> Stellar! <laughs> We're great at your job. Yeah, I bet you they don't still have jobs in the ATF. I hope not. I would think that they probably didn't after this.
0: <laughs> One can only hope, but after the Ruby Ridge incident, something should have happened to them. But oh, it didn't. 100%. They ended up at Mount Carmel. Yep. So, after all of this, the group believed they've now moved into the last phase of the prophecy and they were pushed towards the end time by the authorities. Locked down in Mount Carmel, David started giving interviews over the phone to let the world know what happened. He even agreed to release two children every time the KRLD radio station played his short message about the seals. Four children were released that evening. On Sunday, the ATF began sending messages through the same radio station to the Davidians since they didn't even know the phone number to Mount Carmel.
1: (laughs) Preparation is key. I just feel like it was a group of dumbasses that were like... Let's go shoot some guns at some Texans. Right? (laughs) And they thought the Texans wouldn't shoot back. Yeah.
0: Wow. (sighs) They were telling them that they would not act aggressively if the group just gave up. Pretty sure it's a little bit too late for that. Yeah. Yeah. Once they were able to gain more direct communication, it was clear right away that the law enforcement had no sympathy for their beliefs and that the negotiators and the tactical commanders were not on the same page. There was a constant battle between the two teams. The negotiators wanted to talk to the people of Mount Carmel and find some common ground, but the tactical side only wanted to use force. The FBI was brought in to take over, bringing in their own negotiators and a 50-man hostage rescue team. This is when all outside communication was cut off for the Branch Davidians. The FBI predicted that the standoff would last somewhere between 7 to 10 days.
1: Yeah, it lasted a few days longer than that. Just a couple.
0: With all of the FBI personnel taking over now, you would hope that they would be able to work more like a team, unlike the ATF. However, the dynamic between the two sides remained the same. This is also where our friend Gary Nosner, author of Stalling for Time, comes into the picture. So most of the information I got about the standoff came from his book. Right away, Gary established that the FBI had taken over and they were there to resolve things peacefully. Over the next few days, a total of 12 children would be released. On March 1st, Koresh made the offer to negotiators that if he was able to deliver a nationwide broadcast about the Book of Revelations, he and his followers would surrender the FBI were concerned it would be a last message that would lead to a Jonestown situation. But they agreed under the conditions that the message had to be pre-recorded and reviewed by FBI commanders before it would be released. So the deal was agreed upon. Other FBI agents weren't too hopeful that Koresh and his followers were going to follow through with the deal. But there was not much else they could bargain for, so they just had to wait and see. To quote Gary Nosner, The only thing Koresh wants from us is to go away. We're not going to do that. We can't bargain since he doesn't want anything else. So really, we're not giving up anything. End quote. David's message was 57 minutes long and with no suggestions of mass suicide, it was played on March 2nd by the Christian Broadcasting Network. By then, the number released went up to 18 children and two adults. When it was time for the Davidians to all come out, no movement was being seen. Steve told the FBI that everyone was lined up And ready to go, but they were just taking a while to get David down the stairs on a stretcher as he was in a lot of pain. After a while, with still no results, they asked Steve again what was the holdup. He said David wanted to do just one more Bible study, but then again, after a while, they still had not come out. Steve eventually told agents the Lord spoke to David. The Lord told David to wait, not to come out. Negotiators were disappointed, but not surprised. These kind of setbacks are normal. I was in a
1: rage when I read that part that he wouldn't like, come they, out. I was like, they could have just ended it right there, and so many lives would have been saved. And this selfish, David Koresh, stupid, whatever cult leader is like, eh, no, no, no,
0: no I changed my I don't
1: mind. Think so. David Thibodeau
0: believed that the change of plan was due to the community's behavior the night before. They indulged in eating, drinking, smoking, and cheering which angered Koresh. They were letting down the message, and that is why he changed his mind. Some members said that their behavior damned them, and if they died then, they would no longer be saved. Or he could have just, you know, changed his mind because he's an asshole.
1: Right, because he was pissed that they were like, we're getting out of here. Probably. Like, I'll show you.
0: Although the FBI negotiators had warned the commanders that this kind of thing could happen, they were still visibly upset. Wanting to get even, they chose to move their armoured vehicles onto the Davidians' land in order to increase pressure. Despite the growing tension, more children were released on March 3rd, and one more was released on March 5th. But that would be it for a while. With increasing show of force, David became less cooperative and cut off communications. As well, the remaining children all belonged to David, so he refused to part with any of them. Why wouldn't you want to save your children? right? In order to rebuild trust, negotiators sent in a sutra kit for Koresh and a brief video showing each negotiator that they had spoken with. Each book of their families and showed off their pictures. They did this in order to acknowledge how important family is and how they wanted everyone to come out unharmed. They were now on day eight, but Koresh was still being challenging, focusing solely on religious philosophies and no longer releasing children he was finally regaining his strength, and with that, his ability to manipulate those around him. The key to conflict resolution is to speak the same language as the people you're dealing with, gain personal contact, de-escalate the situation, and bring in a mutual third party. However, the FBI were making things difficult by refusing to speak the same language, referring to it as Bible babble. But an opportunity did arise when the Davidians indicated that the children inside needed milk as their mothers that had been breastfeeding were no longer producing because of all the stress. They brought in someone that they could trust in order to arrange the deal. McClellan County Sheriff Jack Harwell was easygoing and got along with almost everyone. At one point, Koresh even said that if Harwell was the one that came to arrest him in the first place, rather than the heavily armed men from the ATF, he likely would have surrendered. On March 8th, six gallons of milk were left just outside of the compound. In the media, however, the FBI twisted the story to say that they had to beg the Davidians for them to accept their offer, as they were concerned about the children. <laughs> as another dick move, even though... <laughs> some good writing. Mm-hmm. I like it. It's mm-hmm. fitting. It is. <laughs> even though some progress was finally being made, at 2.30 in the morning, Commander Jeff Jamar approved a decision to turn off all of the power going into Mount Carmel. This couldn't have been worse timing, and Steve Schneider questioned how they were expected to keep the milk that was just delivered to them from going bad with the power turned off. Finally, after seven hours, the negotiators were able to convince Jamar to turn the power back on. Idiots, just use your freaking brain. Like, they, they seriously Talked did not other. see the connection, like how that would affect anything. Like, ugh. Oh. <sighs> There's mm.
1: so many frustrating things about this whole case. It's just... All of it. <laughs> all of it. All of it is frustrating.
0: hmm With David digging in his heels and not releasing any more children, the FBI sent in another videotape. This was to show all of the children being well cared for by the Child Protective Services while they waited for their parents to surrender. But Kathy Schroeder noticed a problem with this. Her three children were supposed to be with her ex-husband, but she noticed her youngest son, Brian, was on the tape and all alone. Brian was a son from her second marriage to Mike Schroeder, who had been killed on the second day of the attack. Brian wasn't sent with his brothers because the ex-husband didn't have joint custody of him. This made Kathy very upset, but negotiators were eventually able to use this situation to get her to leave the compound to reunite with their children. Shortly after she left, another member came out as well. The FBI allowed Kathy to speak to Steve over the phone and she confirmed that the children were being well cared for. Things seemed to be moving along in the right direction. However, the commander continued to turn their power off and on. This meant extremely cold temperatures for the Davidians at night and difficulty gaining access to their water supply. Another form of harassment they used against the community was setting up high powered lights aimed directly at Mount Carmel. They also used several armored combat engineering vehicles. To clear away any trash piles around the compound. They said this was so no Davidian could come out and hide behind them and fire on the agents. Not sure why this was all of a sudden a concern, as it was 16 days into the standoff and no one had yet tried to exit the compound or fire at them since the initial attack. It was more than likely being used as an intimidation tactic. However, all that was accomplished here was further pissing off David and severing the phone lines used to talk to those inside now the negotiators had to use a loudspeaker system for communication until a replacement line was established. Seriously, Idiots. just constantly. It's just so frustrating.
1: Um, I can't say it sides.
0: enough. Like, yeah, yeah. A few days later, they went back in again with the armored vehicles and recklessly removed four fuel tanks, a bus, and other vehicles around the compound. But probably one of the most bizarre tactics used to harass the Davidians was when they started blasting strange sound recordings over their speakers including Sounds of Dying Rabbits, which is horrendous, by the way, Tibetan Absolutely chants. awful. <laughs> yeah, just not fun. Tibetan chants, bagpipes, and the song, These Boots Were Made for Walking. Seriously,
1: what like, the hell, guys? Why? <laughs> Who Nobody made
0: those choices? Nobody likes
1: Sinatra that much, but seriously, it, I guess it's torture. I guess. Played enough. At high
0: volumes, I can see. I can see that. This genius idea came from the U.S. Army when they used similar tapes during the Panama invasion. However, the commanders failed to look into that incident far enough to realize that the tactic did not work for the Army either.
1: Wait, what? They didn't do any research or know what the hell they no. were doing? They are like, hey, I heard this happen once. Cool, let's do it. Let's blare dying rabbit sounds for children. That sounds nice. <laughs> right. So
0: peaceful. The sounds went on for several nights as the agents claimed that they had nothing better to do on the night shift and shrugged it off as if it was no big deal. This constant battle between negotiators and the tactical team obviously makes me so angry. (laughs) I can't even imagine how frustrated Gary would have been. Every time they made progress with the Davidians and they began to cooperate again, they would be basically punished for it. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Not not even a little bit. (laughs) No. but negotiators kept pursuing their strategy, and on March 19th, two adults walked out, and on the 21st, seven more left the compound. The trickle-flow-gush approach seemed to be working. However, to some, it apparently wasn't enough. Three hours after these individuals left, someone had decided it would be a good response to remove even more items around the compound, including David's beautiful, restored Chevy Ranchero. They crushed it flat. Clearly, (laughs) they know nothing (gasps) about basic psychology and positive reinforcement. Nothing. Nothing. Like Gary said in his book, it's like you're trying to teach a dog how to fetch, and when it brings the newspaper back to you, you just boot it. Yeah. Like, that's what they're doing. Totally. 100%. After Livingston Fagan decided to come out on March 23rd, but the clearing operation still continued, David put his foot down and declared that no one else would be leaving. In total, 35 had left Mount Carmel, but none would follow after
1: that. Side note, I love the name Livingston Fagan. There's something about it that I just gives me joy. Really interesting. Um, If
0: you want to hear him speak, he is interviewed on the podcast End of Times uh, by BBC Radio 5 Live. Uh, Yeah, they interview him, and he's very interesting. He's still a very, very strong believer
1: interesting like
0: yes you can tell he's a very he's very intelligent British man but he's also like one of those people that are like this is so obvious like why don't you understand what I'm saying but it's like his beliefs are like so outlandish to most people because they don't you know they don't understand the the teachings of David Koresh so anyways it's it was very interesting to listen to him talk cool interviews so if you want to do that check him out more then you can do that because you know one of the few that survived. Yeah. Gary Nosnar was angry and disappointed with how the operations had been going. But he still encouraged his team to keep trying. Later that night, he received a call telling him it was time for him to step down as negotiation coordinator. Not surprisingly, things did not get better from there. One positive move they made, however, was allowing two attorneys to talk over the phone and eventually go inside to talk to Koresh. This offered some hope and David decided that they would surrender as soon as he wrote down his unique interpretation of the seven seals, described in the book of Revelation. This would take some time, however. According to the Davidians, Koresh was working day and night to complete this task, but from the FBI's perspective, they believed it was another stalling technique. The FBI didn't want to waste any more time. Each day, they were spending about $128,000, which would add up to be more than $5 million before everything was said and done. (sighs)
1: <sighs> it's a small chunk of change. Just a little, that, little bit of taxpayer money. That could have been completely avoided. Mm-hmm. 100%. Mm-hmm.
0: Jamar and Dick Rogers from the HRT flew to Washington to speak to the newly appointed Attorney General, Janet Reno. They expressed concerns of the sanitary conditions inside Mount Carmel, which were endangering the lives of the children. And they also claimed that Koresh continued to sexually abuse the young girls. During the standoff, however, there was no evidence of this. With only presenting very one-sided information, Jamar requested authorization to use tear gas as a way to drive the Davidians out, and unfortunately, the tactic was approved. The chemical that would be used against the community was CS gas. It causes nausea, disorientation, dizziness, shortness of breath, tightness in the chest, burning of the skin, intense tearing coughing, and vomiting. The gas was recently banned from use in chemical warfare. However, apparently there was no prohibition against using it on American citizens. It is supposed to be non-lethal. However, its effects on children are much more severe and it is absolutely not to be used in confined spaces. But, (laughs) but we will be discussing that heavy topic on the next Waco episode as this is where I will end it for today.
1: Yeah, that's a good place to stop. Yeah, I was, like, getting goosebumps because I was just like, this is awful. It makes me so mad. Ugh. Everything about this makes me so mad. And did I miss it? Did you hmm. mention that Dick Rogers was the same guy from Ruby Ridge? He I didn't in this guy? episode, but yes, yeah. yeah, he was. The same HRT tactical leader Yep. that attacked Ruby Ridge and he gave the order to fire whenever yep. he was the leader on this one. And I'm like, ah, oh, how do you still have a job? Like, how, how did they not learn? No. Oh, so,
0: yeah. so frustrating. Both so sides nice. were in the wrong. Exactly. Like, like we said last episode, it's it's impossible to choose a side because both sides did things so wrong.
1: Yeah. I really felt for the negotiator side of it. Mm-hmm. like. Gary Nosner's book really, and we'll talk about that in our book episode more, but he really revealed his frustrations with the lack of communication between the tactical side and the negotiation side because there was just like dead air between them.
0: Yeah. Literally most of the time he would learn of things that the FBI were doing from people like Steve Schneider in the compound. Yes. They'd be like, why was our power shut off? Why were they playing these recordings again? You said that they were going to stop. He's like, I had no idea. I was told they were going to stop. And his boss is like, oh, yeah, I meant
1: I meant to give that order. Oh, yeah. Oops. I forgot
0: to mention that, but no biggie. Don't
1: worry. I'll look after it.
0: Right?
1: <sighs> yes. <laughs> I, I think we have feelings. I'm so curious as to what our listeners' feelings are. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yes,
0: not that we want to sway anybody's feelings about, you know, what happened. It's just, it's hard not to convey when you feel so strongly about something and something so wrong seems to be happening, it's hard not to express that. So, exactly. <laughs> but we always welcome feedback, opinions like, we want to know what are your thoughts?
1: Theories, thoughts. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Even if you
1: just want to be like, fuck that guy, we want to hear it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. We are so here for that. Yeah. We hope you uh, come back for part three and we will. Talk about when shit
1: really, really hits the fan. Yeah, you think we're mad now.
0: Yeah. I can't even can't even imagine. I'm gonna be so worked up. Like it's gonna be really difficult. But it's it's gonna be hard. Yeah. But we'll talk about the final siege and um a little bit about what happened afterwards, the aftermath of all of it. I really look forward to that. Yeah, me too. Well, I think that's that's all I have for today. Do we have some fluff and stuff?
1: Yes. I knew you'd be ready for some fluff and stuff. I, I, I need some fluff and stuff.
0: Well, I have some for you.
1: Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I just read your question. <laughs> it's
0: a good one. Right? My question today is, if you were a cult leader, what would your cult be about? Hmm...
1: That's an excellent question. Um, probably chocolate. <laughs> yes. Or some sort of food. <laughs> Those were my thoughts too. <laughs> you know. Or like a wine-based cult would be delightful. Oh, yes. I, yeah, I would join your cult. Right? Maybe yeah. you already did. Yeah. <laughs> Right.
0: We already we already have a cult. What am I talking about? We already about? have a cult. This is fine. We're already well established. Yeah, yeah it's fine. <laughs> this is fine. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really thought about my answer too much, but I feel like I feel like I'd be a pretty good cult leader.
1: I just want to say that. Like, uh, yeah. You keep people organized. Yes. You know what where everybody's up to you, mm-hmm. like I mean managers right here. So yeah. Manager, I like to be in charge of people. <laughs>
0: yeah, like well, to know what's going on. I always like to know what's going on, but also I feel like I would be really good with the whole communal, like living off the land. Like I feel like there'd be yeah. a really big focus on that, but like without the religion, because right? I'm like, not
1: religious. I'm not into that. our meat, growing our own garden, you know, like right. Would be feeding great. our chickens our vegetable scraps and exactly. That's what my cult would be like. It would be very chill very cool and if we had to like bring people in we'd be like come to the dark side
0: we have wine and
1: cookies Uh, exactly and what else do you need right and i can just it'd just be very
0: peaceful just like sit outside and just like you know read my book like (laughs)
1: drink my coffee or my wine like Like, like, hippie commune without like the charlie manson lsd (laughs) and whatnot you know exactly the murder (laughs) And, like, I could do without the group sex, probably. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say that. <laughs> That's what I was waiting for.
0: <laughs> Hippie commune with a couple, you know, stipulations.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll have rules to be hippies. Yes.
0: Yeah. But, like, you know, we're still pretty chill. We have rules, yeah. but, like, yeah. we don't want to bring anybody down. No. So join our club. Yeah. Eat some chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Drink some wine. Yeah. Uh, send your applications, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's your part. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's fine. <laughs> oh, make sure to answer our question as well, guys. If you were a cult leader, what would your cult be about? And obviously let us know what you think about part two of Waco. You can email us at murderandmerlot at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at Murder and podcast. Facebook at Murder Merlot Podcast and Twitter at Murder and Merlot One. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google
0: Play, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed, and
1: if you don't, you're dead to me. And remember, our next book we are reading is Labyrinth by Randy Sullivan, and it's about Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls, and I'm reading it right now, guys, and it's so good. Oh, my God. I haven't started yet. I'm so excited, especially from what you've told me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's so different than this, but it's, again, it's a case that I'm super passionate about and I just, uh, yes, so good already. And I'm like, well, I'm not very far in and my kid stole my bookmark out of my book. So now I remember where I was at, but (laughs) that's so funny. (laughs) So, so good. So check it out and yeah. Can't wait to tell you all about it. Yeah. I can't
0: wait for you to talk about it. Like I'm talking so passionately about Waco. I can't wait to hear
1: it from you. But with that story. Yes. I'm so excited. Excellent. All right. Remember to drink wine because it's not good to keep things bottled up. Wow.
0: Bye. Bye.